0: Let's pray. Jesus,
1: we pray for some insight, uh, for some glimpse into your character this morning. As we consider what it means to feel forsaken, uh, I pray that you would be with us this morning and remind us that you are with us. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Good morning. We are in the middle of a series called Songs of Worship, Getting Real with God. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember we talked about Psalm 1 uh, and how the psalmist in that particular song believed that there's a choice about the way we live, whether it's not just a simple choice between do we do good things or do we do, do bad things, but a choice about whether or not we'll choose to walk with God through all the times of our life. So you might remember uh, that we also said the Psalms were sort of the official hymn book uh, of the children of Israel in the time when Jesus lived. And the Psalms give us uh, vocabulary and even permission sometimes to have some difficult conversations with God, to ask some hard questions, questions like the one that Doris read for us this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, whether you're a Christian whether you're not a Christian, whether you believe in the Bible, whether you're just checking this faith thing out or whether you're sort of reinvestigating faith, most, if not all of us, have asked the question, why me? How could this be happening? But to be forsaken is not the same as to be just simply abandoned. It's not the same thing as a simple betrayal. Last week, our family went with some friends to Yahya Orchard, not too far from here. Uh, we went for a picnic and some cider donuts and fresh apple cider. Everybody know Yaya Orchard? If you don't know it, you should investigate. Yeah, Ryan, well, Ryan was the one that took us there. His hand was the first to go up. Um, so we enjoyed the afternoon. It was, it was a pretty perfect afternoon, I think, for, for what we were there for. It was warm. There was a little bit of a crisp breeze in the air. Uh, it sort of reminded me of uh, fall afternoons uh, when I was a kid growing up in Michigan. Just really perfect day. Um, Ryan took some photos that made us look better than we really look, except for me, he always got me standing sideways shoving a donut into my face. But that's okay because I enjoyed more than my fair share of donuts. Um, while we were there though, you know, as you come into the property, there are some, there are some signs that you notice. One says, no smoking, no dogs, no smoking dogs. Uh, that's a real sign that they have there. Um, And while we were there, we met one of the locals that helped to make the orchard run on a daily basis. We don't know a lot of details about him, only what we observed that day. Um, I sympathized with him a little bit because he had just little bits of gray in his beard too. Uh, We don't know how old exactly he was, but we know two things about him. Those two things are his name because they were printed on the heart-shaped name tag that hung around his neck, Whiskey Jack. If you don't know Whiskey Jack, he has a way of sort of sauntering around the place, not threatening, just very calm, very, um, he has a way of walking and just these eyes that, he's a black lab, he's like some sort of a dog, right? Um, But he has a way of looking at you, a way of approaching you that says, I'm your friend. You can trust me. And so we didn't think anything of it when Whiskey Jack sort of sauntered up behind me and he just sort of, like, you know how dogs do sometimes, he just sort of leaned his body against my back while I was sitting on our picnic blanket. And I didn't suspect anything. And he slowly eased his legs out in front of him next to us on the, on the blanket and he laid his head sort of on my leg and I thought, oh, this is a good friend, this is a good, good dog. But when my son's peanut butter and jelly sandwich disappeared, in a split second. I wish that I could have captured the look on Anderson's face as he recognized the truth. Jack was not our friend. (laughs) He was a hungry dog, looking for an opportunity to grab a delicious snack while an unsuspecting family looked in the other direction. Whiskey Jack. We were betrayed by Jack, but we were not forsaken. Being forsaken is not the same as simply being betrayed. And even our secular society understands this to some degree. People who never use the name of Jesus in any other circumstance see tragedy happen like we saw this week in Las Vegas. And they, they throw out phrases like, God forsaken. We see things like the tragic shooting this week in Las Vegas. And these words come to mind. And part of the tragedy for me, honestly, is that we've started to, these things start to be less shocking. We always, we use the terminology to talk about how terrible they are, but we seem to be less and less shocked as more of these things happen. It's enough to make you wonder sometimes if God is still listening, or have we in fact been God forsaken. We're used to hearing those words in connection with places or circumstances where there's simply no hope, not even a glimmer. Last year, Netflix released a series. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you may be honest and say that you've seen it. Some of you may not want to. Um, But it's called 13 Reasons Why. This is not an endorsement for the series. I'm not suggesting everyone go out and watch it. um, But as a parent, I think it's important for us to understand that these conversations are happening because it's about a teenager who chooses ultimately to take her own life and it's a reminder that hopelessness is not something that only affects people of a certain age. Like you don't graduate from middle school or high school or college, and then finally, now you're old enough to experience hopelessness. We have to ask ourselves, as a church and as parents, have we been enough of an influence in our kids' lives that when they feel forsaken, they know they have someone to talk to? The Truth is that many of us have felt forsaken at at one time or another. Although it's easier sometimes when we're in church to pretend that everything is good, we've never had a doubt, we've never been disappointed, we've never struggled. Uh, A few weeks ago, Russell Hansen gave a beautiful offering appeal um, and was really vulnerable with us as a church. But that's not something we see very often. Usually we like to just sort of pretend we've always just trusted and God has always provided. But if we're honest, Many of us have struggled with the feeling that God is either inattentive or uncooperative or maybe just late, that God is either not paying attention or not answering our prayers or maybe is too busy with more important people than us. You might know people, I know I do, you might know people that seem to have sort of a special relationship with God, like when they talk, when they pray, when they talk to God, the prayers are just answered. They have sort of an inside track on who God is. These people know how to get things done. When Dina and I were newlyweds, we were at a concert, and I happened to be one of the performers. And afterward, I was trying to sell CDs out in the lobby. That was when CDs still existed. There was no such thing as iTunes or digital downloads. or. Um, and so I had a stack of CDs. And when you're trying to sell CDs, you want to look friendly. This is what I learned over time. You want to look friendly, but you also want to look a little bit hungry, right? Because you want people to know, oh, they're... Supporting ministry, they're putting food on the table for your family, and so I was kind of standing there doing my my shtick, trying to smile. And I'm an introvert, so it's all it's always been sort of a challenge for me. But um, but as I stood there, uh, there was a girl that came up, and she bought a CD, and we started making small talk. And um, so she said, uh, she said, you know, we should come up with like a like a secret handshake, like. She said, 20 years from now, we'll meet again. We might not remember each other, but we'll remember the secret handshake. We should come up with this. We'll be like in a secret club. And Dina was sort of watching the whole exchange. And I looked at Dina, and I want you to know what a chivalrous young man I was. I said to this girl, I looked her square in the eyes, and I said, I will not remember the secret handshake. So, of course, Dina brought it up to me later in the car. She said, you, you know, you, you, could have, you could have at least pretended to be sort of a normal person. Like, you could have said, yes, we're, we're friends. I'll remember the secret handshake. But I didn't. Um, it feels sometimes like there are people in our lives who know the secret handshake with Jesus. Like, they, they know the right code. They have the right language in their prayers. These people know how to get things done. But sometimes um, it's hard to feel like we we don't know the code. We aren't we aren't part of the inner circle, because the truth is that many of us, if not most, if not if not all of us, have felt like God is either inattentive, uncooperative, or just late. Or as one modern songwriter, who we said goodbye to this week, once put it: "You take it on faith, and you take it to the heart, but the waiting." Is the hardest part. These words by Tom Petty remind us that it's difficult sometimes when God feels intentive, uncooperative, or late. So I'm gonna ask you right now to do something, uh, to be a little bit vulnerable because we can see each other here, we can look each other in the eyes. And even if you're watching online, I'm gonna invite you to participate with this part. Uh, I'm gonna ask you simply to raise your hand if you've ever felt like God was either not paying attention, not answering or was too late for something you were praying about. Now here's where it gets really scary. Keep your hands up. Now look around the room. Look at all the hands that are up. All the hands of honest people. No, all the hands of people who have felt like... Now some of you are here, you can put your hands down. Some of you are here for this reason alone this morning. Because you needed a reminder that you are not the only one who's felt this way. See, the idea, when we, when we start feeling this way, like God isn't answering our prayers, one of the things we tend to believe is that maybe I'm the only one, maybe nobody else knows how I feel. In church, if we're honest, you know, preachers don't always uh, help with the problem. Like, our job is to stand up on the platform and somehow to give people hope. And so, um, we talk about a psalm like Psalm 22, and if, if we're honest, uh, sometimes it feels sort of like one of those motivational posters from the 80s. You might remember them. This is one. Hang in there. I have to be careful. I'm not knocking the poster itself. Uh, I made that mistake once. Um, not with this poster, but with another poster. Do you remember the other posters that were, they were, it was always of kids. They were always black and white. The kids were really small. The clothes were gigantic, like they somehow were wearing their parents' clothes. Everything in the photo was black and white, except usually there was a little boy handing a girl a rose in the photo. You remember the posters? And the rose was always in color, and I thought they were so cheesy. And before you judge me, you should know I've been through that humiliation and, and, and pain already, because when Dina and I were dating, I was at dinner, uh, we were having dinner at her house one night, and I made the mistake of letting that slip. I told her how horrible I thought these posters were. And she said, do you mean like that one, hanging on my wall? <laughs> so I've, I've been there. Um, in the 90s, though, there was another company called Demotivators, and they, they kind of took their own turn uh, kind of playing off these posters. And so this was their version of the Hang In, po- hang in There poster. It says, give up. At some point, hanging in there just makes you feel like an even bigger loser. (laughs) I like this one because it feels a little more authentic sometimes. Like, um, although I did think, in the case of both of these posters, like, it sort of begs the question, like, who does this to a cat? Like, who, what type of person is throwing, I just imagine someone sort of tossing a kitten at a rope, hoping they'll, but I'm not really a cat person. It doesn't keep me up too late, uh, too late at night. But our friend Carl Hafner tells a story um, during which he talks about unanswered prayers, how difficult these are for us. Uh, he talks about some prayers, prayers that I like to call maybe little prayers. They're prayers that you there's the stories you hear about someone lost a contact lens or they lost their keys or they lost. Um, they lost something and they prayed and then they found it. And there's no doubt in my mind that being in the middle of those circumstances, those things feel like, I mean, we've all been there. In fact, Jesus even told a story once about a lady who lost a coin and she tore the whole house apart looking for it. But in reality, when you're a parent praying for a child to come home, when you're praying for a pregnancy that isn't going according to plan, When you're praying for a relationship, or a marriage, that's falling apart. When you're praying about how to pay all of your bills, when you're crushed by the weight of your student loans, and you're met with silence, stories about contact lenses and keys and coins, they don't really offer much hope, do they? In fact, sometimes they seem like little prayers in comparison. So what do we do? There are a lot of things that we could talk about when we talk about Psalm 22. Some preachers, some scholars think that it was prophetic, and you heard it in the language this morning when Doris read for us, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's certainly that element of it. But when we look at the story, how do we respond when we feel like God is either inattentive or uncooperative? or late, how do we deal with that? Because when you sit in those circumstances long enough, when it feels like you're waiting with no answers, there comes a point when you start to say to yourself, well if God is silent, then God must also be absent. And if God is absent, is it possible that maybe God doesn't exist? So let me offer this as a word of, of hope this morning. If lack of cooperation proved that something doesn't exist, then most of us who are parents would have no children. If the answer no disproved existence, then those of us who are children, that would be all of us, right, wouldn't have parents. We'd just be sort of walking around the house saying, there is no dad. But sometimes we try to live that way. There are some things I've found that make my blood boil as a parent. One thing, it's one thing to be defied, Uh, it's embarrassing, it can be upsetting, fits in the grocery store are always fun, but the thing, so Dina reminded me last week after I preached, she said, you know, um, we we love our kids, we want them to love us, perhaps we should not use every story about them as a sermon illustration. So I'm not going to tell you which child this one is, but his name rhymes with Schmanderson, and he knows that what really pushes dad's buttons is to ignore me. When I say things like, come in here and put your shoes on so we can get out the door. And it's like, was that, was, was that a sound? Was there something? And he seems so content in his rebellion. But If there's, if there's nothing else you take away this morning, I hope you know this that I believe we can go through the wilderness. I believe we can go through those dry spells. I believe we can go through the times when God seems inattentive, uncooperative, or late. Because even though there's no simple answer, we believe God is walking with us through those times. Not just that he's providing rescue, but that he's actually with us. And I believe this is true because there are stories of people in the Bible who we know that God loved, who he knew by name, we cared about deeply, who also must have asked the same question, why have you forsaken me? Sean Nolan reminded me last week that um, when the nation of Israel was choosing a name for the country, they chose the name Israel because of what it means. It was a new name that was given to a character in the First Testament named Jacob. It's recorded early in the Bible in the book of Genesis, and to put it in a nutshell, Jacob was not a good role model. <laughs> he um, he traded most of the, sacrificed most of the relationships with just about everyone in his family to get ahead and maybe especially with his brother Esau. At one point in the story when Jacob must have felt alone, when he must have felt forsaken by everyone who ever cared about him, he decided it was time to get things right with God and with his brother Esau. So he set up a meeting. Now, as they were the night before, they were getting to, to, ready to meet. Jacob got word from a messenger that Esau was bringing 400 men with him to the meeting. I don't know if you've ever set up a meeting expecting one person to show. Maybe this will be the church business session tomorrow night. We're expecting one person, but 400 of us are going to show up. Hopefully. Uh, so this was J- Jacob was getting the message. This was not even though he called the meeting, was hoping it was going to go well. This was not going to necessarily be a friendly meeting. And so he did what many of us would do before a big presentation, he decided to go for a walk. On that walk, uh, he met someone, and here's how the writer of Genesis tells the story. I'm going to read it to you from the message paraphrase. But Jacob stayed behind by himself, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't get the best of Jacob as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. And the man said, let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Maybe Jacob is getting a clue, getting a glimmer of who he's wrestling with. And the man uh, man said, what's your name? And he answered, Jacob. The man said, but no longer. Your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, it's Israel, which means God wrestler. You've wrestled with God and you've come through. All of a sudden Jacob realizes, or he's starting to realize, he says, what's your name? And the man said, why do you not know my name? I just, I can imagine him saying, I just told you your name is God Wrestler. Why do you not know my name? And then right there, then and there, he blessed him. And Jacob called the place Peniel, God's face, because he said, I saw God face to face and lived to tell the story. I love the story of Jacob because I imagine when he felt the arms of that man lock around him, he didn't recognize he was wrestling with God. He only knew that he was fighting for his life. Sometimes our story feels like we're fighting for our lives. We're so busy fighting that we don't recognize the presence of God with us. If that's where you are this morning, I want to give you permission to take a breath, to recognize that. And that's what brings us to our first recalibrate question. It's in your worship guides. What are you wrestling with about God in life right now? The second story I'd like to look at this morning is about another guy who Jesus called the goat. He didn't actually call him the goat. But you know the phrase? Goat, G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. I'm trying to keep up with the kids and be hip and <laughs> failing most of the time. Uh, Jesus once said about this guy that among those born of women, which would be pretty much everyone, there's no one greater than him, no one greater than John. We know him as John the Baptist, he was also Jesus' cousin. So, to give you some background on the story, uh, at the time Jesus was born, there was a king in Judea named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was not a great guy, a great builder maybe, but the reason that he got the name Herod the Great was, well, we don't, we don't know except that maybe he was a great builder. He was actually a pretty terrible person. He was so bad that before he died, he rounded up some of the most popular people in the area, had them all thrown in prison. And then he ordered on the day that he died, all those people should be executed. You see, he wanted to be sure that when he died, somebody mourned. Someone was sad. That was the kind of reputation that he had. So to be sure that people cried on the day he died, he set this whole scheme up. But instead of that happening, all these people were released, and there were parties in the streets. That's the kind of, that's the kind of leader that Herod the Great was. But he had three sons, named them all Herod, not at all self-preoccupied self, uh, self with himself. Herod Philip, Herod Archelaus, And Herod Antipas, who was the king of Galilee at the time Jesus and John the Baptist were grown men. Now, none of these guys were much better than their father. Um, Herod Philip was married to a woman named Herodias, but Herod Antipas, who was Herod Philip's brother, convinced Herodias that she should come and marry him instead to be the queen of Galilee. Now, not surprisingly, this was not an extremely popular decision. And one person who chose to speak out against it was a man named John. So Herod had John thrown in prison. Now, while John was sitting in jail, sort of waiting, he must have been wondering what was going to happen next, what was going to come up. He got a visit from his disciples, and he asked them to go talk to Jesus about something. Now, you have to remember that this is John the Baptist. His entire reputation, his entire career was spent talking about Jesus. It was spent talking about the coming Messiah who was gonna come and take the sins of the world away. And also, if you're sinning, knock it off. Like that was kind of the summary of his message. But now, John's disciples come to him, and this story is recorded in Matthew's Gospel starting in chapter 11, verse two. It's page, uh, if you have your pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 905. So again, we have John, who has made a, staked his whole reputation, made his whole career talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah. His disciples come to him. He says, I want you to go ask this question of Jesus. And here's what he says. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John, whose whole career, whose whole message was the idea that Jesus is the one who is to come, is now asking the question, have we made a mistake? John's having second thoughts, sitting in prison. He's wondering if maybe he's made the wrong choice, whether he's maybe followed the wrong path. It's funny sometimes how our circumstances can shape our faith. For some of us, it's a matter of life getting good. We sort of think we're the captains of our own destiny. And life is good. So we don't need faith. We don't need God. For others of us, there's sort of a threshold of pain that we reach. And at that point, we're unable to think about anyone or anything but ourselves. Dina, I have to tell you, who is normally a very compassionate person, has told me that that is me whenever I'm sick. I get a little bit sick and I'm unable to think. I just sort of lay at the other end of the house moaning and calling out, "Help! Everyone has forsaken me." Um, but maybe we could think of it this way. We heard about recent hurricanes in Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, and it was really easy for those of us who weren't affected to say things like, "Well, I'll pray, pray for Puerto Rico, pray for Texas, pray for Florida." And it's good. I'm not, in fact, I'm not knocking the power of prayer. But when something happens to someone else, it's really easy for us to use those words, I'll pray for you. Sometimes when something happens to us, it's much more difficult. It's easy to offer the words, I'll pray for you, when we're so used to sort of spitting them out. Uh, there's a late night TV host, Jimmy Kimmel, this, this week, who reminded us on Facebook that thoughts and prayers aren't enough. I have to wonder if what he really meant when he said those is that it's not enough to just think and pray about something if our thoughts and prayers don't lead us to action. The words are easy for us to say without following through, but when it affects us directly, we forget to pray for different reasons. Like we can't see beyond the prison of our own circumstances. Like maybe John couldn't see beyond the literal prison of his own circumstances. And that's why Jesus' response to him is hard for, still hard for us to swallow today. Because he didn't say, hang in there, here's a cat. Look at what he actually says. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, God is still at work in the world. You are trapped in your prison, in the prison of your circumstances, but remember that God is still doing things in the world. And then he adds this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So well, That brings us to our second recalibrate question this morning how have you been offended by Jesus lately? I can imagine John's disciples saying, well, Jesus, that's not really a very hopeful response. Like, what are we going to do? You know, John, prison? But Jesus was essentially saying to John, you can't see the bigger story that's happening. But God is still at work in the world, and I need you to trust me in spite of what I am not going to do. In that last sentence, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's like Jesus is saying, I need you to trust me, even though I'm not rescuing you from this. Even when the answer is no. Even when the answer is silence. Now this is extremely difficult for us. Especially in light of Psalm 1 that we read last week, where the psalmist says, if you're good, if you follow the law of God, you'll prosper And if you're a bad person, you're going to be destroyed. This doesn't seem to fit that picture. Before Jesus was crucified, the gospel writers writers tell us he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and said to God, isn't there any other way? Isn't there some other way we could do this? And God's answer, answer to Jesus was no. And as a result, we have Jesus praying the same prayer that we read this morning. Why have you forsaken me? I have to wonder, what if what if God had said yes? If God had said yes to Jesus, yeah, there's another way we can do it. There's an easier way. There's something less complicated. I wonder, would we still be talking about it today? Would we be here talking about it? Sometimes trusting Jesus means we don't get the answers we're expecting or hoping for. I think sometimes... Uh, we think that praying more or, or being good, doing the right thing, getting sin out of our lives, or obeying Jesus better is going to get us the right answers to our prayers. But having more faith wasn't going to keep John the Baptist out of prison. Doing the right thing wasn't, wasn't going to keep John the Baptist out of prison. In fact, it was what got him there. The psalmist understood this, and it sort of seems to fly in the face of what we talked about last week. Something we all sort of believe, that if you're, if you're good, you should succeed, and if you're bad, you should fail. But in the difficult parts of our life, in the times where our life doesn't match that picture, when we ask, God, where are you? Sometimes God still says to us, don't lose faith in me because of me. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Don't lose your faith because of what you observe I am about to do or not about to do. Now, if you know the rest of the story of John the Baptist, you may remember that Herod invited some friends to a party one night, and Herod asked his niece, Salome to dance for them. And it must have been quite a dance, maybe even more impressive than my Michael Jackson dancing from last week. Because when she was finished, he offered her anything, even up to half of the kingdom, her response, let me ask my mom. Now you might remember her mom was Herodias, who was married to Herod, who used to be married to Herod's brother and sort of complicated. And the gospel writers tell us that she still burned with anger against John the Baptist. So the answer came back we want John's head on a silver platter. I have to wonder, if John asked the question, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' response to John, there's still something for us today. I suggested last week that there's a choice we have to make, not just whether we do good things or bad things, but whether we choose to walk with Jesus when life is good and when life is difficult, when life is bad. When things are easy, when things are difficult, When we have the answers we're looking for, and when we still haven't found what we're looking for. When we bring God our difficult questions and the answer is silence, we have to remember that there's a promise if you'll remain faithful in spite of what God hasn't done. John the Baptist understood this. The psalmist understood it. Jacob understood it. Jesus understood it. It's why we have the rest of Psalm 22. Even though it started with those words, why have you forsaken me? If you read it all the way to the end and you heard bits and pieces of it in the the scripture this morning. The psalmist, almost in the next breath after saying, why have you forsaken me? Says, but but I know there's deliverance. And God's people will sing about God's deliverance. It's why, uh, although the psalmist recognizes the difficulty of his immediate circumstances. He also points us to the fact that God's people will sing his praises. It's part of the reason that we have Psalm 22, and right next to that, we have Psalm 23, another psalm that a lot of us know by heart. I'm going to ask Ellie if she would come up. I've asked her if she would kind of help us with this Ellie is going to remind us of some of the words to Psalm 23. Whenever you're ready.
0: The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My, cu- my cup once over. Sully m- and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Yeah, you can go sit down
1: now. Thank you. I wonder if we could all pray that prayer as confidently. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The psalmist understood the choice that we're faced with daily to walk with or without our shepherd, to trust him with our lives or to remain control ourselves. That, in fact, is a theme throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Who is gonna be God in your life? Who is gonna be in control? Will we try and walk it on our own or will we walk with our shepherd? And that brings us to our third and final recalibrate question for this morning. Before I ask it, I'll tell you what it is for me. It's finances for me. The question is, what is one thing in your life that could change everything if you could just trust Jesus to take care of it? If you knew that everything else was going to be fine, if this one piece just fell into place. There's something in your life this morning. There's got to be, because I know there is for me. I know there's got to be for you. So Our final question this morning, before we sing together. What is the one thing in your life that could change everything else if you could just trust Jesus to take care of it? Amen.